Amen. Let that be our prayer this morning as we together take our Bibles and open up God's Word to Mark and to chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, we will be reading verses 41 through 50 this morning, finishing up our look at chapter 9 here in Mark. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 41, and let us again be reminded, this is God's word to us, so let us give good attention as it is read in our hearing. Verse 41 says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, it be, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word as we have read it this morning. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through our Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to us this morning. We pray that you would give to us the grace of your spirit that we might understand and appropriate and And Lord, retain these things that we think of this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. In our passage this morning, or or rather in our message this morning, we are going to do two things that you would not come across in many churches in our country. One, we are going to hear about sin and the seriousness of sin. And two, we are going to hear about hell. We're going to hear about them because Jesus is going to talk about them. Historically, of course, the subjects of sin and hell have been regular topics, topics of discussion and topics of sermons in the church until recently where they have fallen out of vogue. Today it's harder and harder to hear sermons on either of these topics. There are pastors, well-known pastors, a couple come to mind that, that state that they will not talk about sin. So today it's harder to hear these things. Uh, there are preachers in the church today uh, who, who will not preach on it, although it is exactly what we need to hear. One of the reasons that 
these will not speak of it is because they say it will cause people to feel condemned, which in and of itself is exactly what the subject is supposed to do. Talk of sin, talk of hell, is to pierce our souls, to pierce our hearts, to, to condemn us, because that's what the law does. It is important, because that is precisely what then leads the way, doesn't it, to the gospel. The gospel of Christ, the one and only remedy from the horrific reality of hell as a result of the rebelliousness of sin. Jesus, as we'll see this morning and as we see elsewhere, didn't shrink back from talking about these things. So let us learn what he has to say about them in this passage this morning. We'll look at three things. If you have your uh, outline and are following along, you'll see that the first thing that Jesus talks about, and this will be the, the majority of what we'll talk about this morning, is he talks about the seriousness of sin. Jesus' statements here, in, particularly in verses 43 through 50, they come in the context of what we've already looked at in, in verses 41 and 42, and of course before that, uh, but we read verses 41 and 42 that we've already looked at. As Jesus is with his disciples, he's teaching his disciples as they are, remember, moving from up in Caesarea, moving south, going toward Jerusalem, where Jesus will die for the sins of others. And if you remember from last week, Jesus had been, uh, in this broader passage, had been replying to the Apostle John's description of a meeting with a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And John and uh, unnamed other disciples rebuked this man for it since he was not part of their group. He was not part of the twelve. Jesus, remember, in turn, then corrected John and said that those who are working appropriately for the kingdom of God as that work was beginning to to spread, that that should be a source of of thanksgiving among the disciples. Um, And he told them that those who do that would be blessed. In verse 41, he even says that those who, who support God's work, even through the giving of a cup of cold water to you because you are a Christian, because you are a follower of Christ, that is not to be rejected. But on the other hand, verse 42, Jesus spoke otherwise in verse 42. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus speaking there about the incredible danger and the serious consequences of misleading another Christian, especially a younger-in-the-faith Christian, the danger of leading another believer into sin. And now, in verse 43, Jesus changes his focus and broadens his comments to speak now about the incredible danger and the serious consequences of causing oneself to sin. Which, as we even think about it, and as we read this passage, even before we get into our text, 
this should bring to our attention the truth and our danger, that that danger to sin, the temptation, does not only come from without, but it comes, in fact, it primarily comes from within. We are our own worst enemies when it comes to serving God appropriately. Listen to what James said. He said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And that's the way we are, or we're kind of the opposite of that. We, always, we are always looking out there for what has caused me to sin. As James also says in another part of his, his epistle, some even blame God. Well, God tempts me to sin. To which James quickly says, well, God forbid. God is not tempted and he does not tempt anyone with sin. Rather, James again says that each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are our own worst enemy. Yes, Satan dangles pretty things in front of our eyes, the lure of the things of the world, the pleasures of sin, the empty promises of the senses and things that appeal to them. But it is our own fallen minds. It's our own wicked hearts that take the bait and which chase those things that we should rather avoid. And how seriously should we avoid them? How seriously should we take this battle with the world and the flesh and the devil? How much should we, brothers and sisters, be willing to suffer in order to be faithful to Christ? Now, we know that our salvation is not through works. It's not obtained through what we do but through faith, receiving God's gift of forgiveness of all of our sins, and that we are therefore received by Christ and united by Christ and justified by God and adopted by Him. We know that, but we also know, don't we, if you're a student of your Bible, you also know that the indicator of that faith is our works, our actions. Our lifestyles, our choices, our resisting sin, those all prove the existence of the saving faith that we say we have. That's James again. And Jesus, here in this passage, is not engaged here in a a tightly reasoned argument of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, as Paul would be. Jesus is speaking here with a particular purpose to warn his disciples about the seriousness of sin. And he does so here in very vivid terms. And the terms that he's going to use, uh, which we've read already and you have them in your mind, they would be amplified really in the, the audience that he has, that he's speaking to, his disciples, Jewish men. Because for the Jews, the idea of of bodily mutilation of any kind was especially repugnant. And it was, of course, forbidden by the Mosaic Law. 
as well as in the Mosaic Law, there is this emphasis that we read of sacrifices being physically intact, physically perfect. And we'll see that the idea of sacrifice comes in what we're looking at today. And because of all of that, it is all the more shocking when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Graphic examples of the seriousness of sin. Now, we must understand, of course, that these are not meant to be taken literally. Jesus is engaged in hyperbole here, which means to exaggerate in order to to give an effect, exaggeration for effect. And that's what Jesus is doing. After all, people without hands or feet or eyes are still able to sin as much as anyone else. And even if we or someone else were to go to the extreme of taking this literally and doing these kinds of things, mutilating ourselves, sin would not therefore be avoided, would it? Because, after all, sin does not originate in the hand or the eye or the foot. But according to Mark 7.21, it originates in the heart. And Jesus here does not introduce works as a means of salvation, but he is reinforcing the clear fact that a pervasive, characteristic, unrepentant sin is incompatible with a redeemed soul, a redeemed person. But Jesus gives these three examples, these three illustrations. First, your hand. He says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's he talking about there? Well, the hand are the, are the means by which we put our desires into practice, whether those are good or bad. He's speaking here about how we occupy our time, our work, our actions, our recreation even, and the sins that we commit with our hands, theft and murder, those types of things. And Jesus is saying here that if your hand, if your actions like that are the occasion of your sinning, he's saying that you would be better off without it. That it would be better, and this part's not hyperbole, that it would be better for you to have no hands, and yet, Jesus says, to enter into life than it would be to have two perfectly formed, perfectly functioning hands. And with those hands, he says, go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. He says there to enter into life. And the life that's pictured there as being entered into is the full expression of life, the full expression of eternal life, the full and the consummate expression of the kingdom of God. And that would be the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Heaven, as we would commonly refer to it. We see in all three of these statements that Jesus makes that it is set in contrast with being thrown into hell. The second thing that he mentions is your foot. Your foot, your feet represent the places that we go. 
where we walk, with whom we walk, with whom we associate. The opening of the Psalter, Psalm 1, says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. And for some, sin comes, for all of us to some degree, but particularly for some, sin comes in the form of where they go and when they go. Maybe it's to the strip club. Maybe it's to the bar. Maybe it's, and listen carefully here, maybe it's to the sports arena or the golf course or the movie theater if they take you there instead of to church on Sunday morning. Nothing wrong with going to a sports arena or to a golf course or in many cases to a movie theater, but if you're going there instead of worshiping together with God's people, then there's something wrong with it. Then you're choosing the world instead of the Lord, and the things of the world instead of the things of God. Where we walk is what's being spoken of here. And Jesus says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Because, he says, it would be far better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Pretty clear. The last of the three exhortations is in verse 47. Your eye, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This likely represents all of the things that we see, that we are drawn toward, and so represents sins such as coveting or lust, adultery of the heart, or what John in 1 John 2.16 calls the desires of the eyes. There's that little, little children's Sunday school song that says, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And it's true for adults as well. There are a lot of things that we need not, should not, must not be letting our eyes see. And it is very often those very things that are plastered everywhere in our world today. And again, an exaggeration to make a point, Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So these three things that he gives, the the serious, harsh means of dealing with all sin, represented by these three body parts, the things that he suggests here, uh, the, the, the results of that, he says, would be absolutely immaterial in comparison with the need to enter life, or as he says in verse 47, to enter into the kingdom of God, referencing the same thing. Whatever state of disfigurement in which one would potentially enter into the eternal kingdom would be well worth it. And of course, though, as we think of these things, we are reminded also that Elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that in the reality of the case, no one who enters into God's heaven will enter into that heaven imperfect in any way. But they will enjoy, we will enjoy by God's grace and the power of God, a body glorified, a body fit for heaven. 
We'll enjoy that by the grace of God, the power of God, a body fit for heaven when that corruptible puts on incorruptibility, when the mortal puts on immortality, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. We go into the eternal state with perfect wholeness and perfect blessedness. But why does Jesus focus on this? Why does he suggest these things? Why does he use this exaggeration, this harsh imagery to speak to his disciples of these things? It's because Jesus knows the seriousness of sin. He is in the midst of dealing with the seriousness of sin as he speaks here. He knows the effects of sin, and we know the effects of sin. We know that, as one has said, there is in the least of sins the merit of eternal punishment. And James, again, tells us in chapter 2 that if we are guilty of one part of the law, we're guilty of the whole law. What are some of those effects? Just a few of them here. The seriousness of sin is so evident because sin separates you from God. Of course, that's the result of the fall. We read that in Genesis 3 this morning, the record of that. Adam and Eve's rebellion against God's commandment resulted in their physical separation from God as they were expelled from from the garden, and more importantly, their spiritual separation from a proper relationship with God, the, the very definition of the curse. Sin separates you from God. Sin also brings condemnation and eternal punishment from God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The result of it is eternal punishment. Again, something Jesus is not afraid to speak about. But even as Christians, we know those two things have been taken care of by Christ in his redemptive work. But sin still has an effect on us. It, sin saps our spiritual strength and our comfort. When there is unrepentant sin in our lives, sin that we have not that we have recognized, that we have not destroyed, we become spiritually weak. A shell of our normal vitality. Sin, when it's not dealt with immediately and harshly, creeps into our hearts and makes its home there. Particular sins can become the delight of our heart, even over our desire to please God. Sin is like an ant. You see one, and if you don't squish it, soon you'll have an infestation. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin enslaves us. For Christians, it need not. That's been taken care of. But we often become willing slaves to it. Another instance of the seriousness of sin Also, like ants, if one's left to roam, if one's sin is left to roam within your heart, it will soon bring its friends. One cherished sin, beloved, one permitted sin will soon bring his friends along with him. One lie 
almost invariably leads to another. David's adultery with Bathsheba led on to his murder of her husband. That's the way it is with sin. One leads to another. Sin hinders, Christian, our spiritual walk. The Puritan John Owen said this about sin, that it is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. So sin sort of throws a blanket, a wet blanket over our Christian life and mutes our our joy, our excitement of the Christian life, our peace, our sense of, of fellowship, our sense of assurance, our sense of confidence. Back in Psalm 32, David said, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept my sin to myself and did not confess it, did not repent of it, it was like a thick cloud. It was like a wet blanket over the joy of my life. Here's one that we often don't think about, and we'll just stop with this one here, is that sin also hinders our prayers. The psalmist, again, Psalm 66, 18, said, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do you ever think of that? Oh, why is my prayer, why is the Lord not answering my prayer? Consider the fact that it's because you are cherishing iniquity, some iniquity in your heart. Again, a sin that you recognize You identify, but you haven't dealt with. You don't repent of. You just happily live in it. Again, John Owen put it so clearly. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So what should we do? Well, don't literally cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye, but deal with harshly with your sin. See, that's the, the part of the image that carries over into how, what we should do is the harshness of it, the seriousness of it. Paul uses the language. We read it in Colossians this morning, the language of putting your sin to death, killing it, slaying it. In Romans 8.13 Paul also said that if you live according to the, fle- to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And of course, the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit is necessary in all of this. We can't do any of this on our own. Again, Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you. That's the way that Paul expresses what Jesus is expressing here. Recognize it and confess it to God. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So recognize our sin. Confess our sin to God. Don't make excuses for it. Don't hide it. 
Don't point to someone else and say, well, they're worse. Recognize it. Confess it. Turn from it. Repent of it. And put it to death through prayer and through faith and through God's grace and through godly determination. Make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. Don't give it a chance. That's part of the picture that Jesus is painting here. And finally, do what you must do to obey the Lord who redeemed you from those sins. Deal harshly with it. Replace the sins. This is part of it is to replace the sinful actions, the, sin, the sins that you struggle with. Repent of them, turn from them, and replace them with godly actions. It's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 when he said, let the thief no longer steal. He didn't just stop there. Well, what did he say? He said, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with those who are in need. Put off the sin and put on the virtue. Put on the obedience that God would have you to do. If you come to to view sin rightly as that horrid thing which put Christ on the cross and would destroy your soul, if it could, then return the favor. Put it to death. It would put you to death if it could. Crucify the flesh. Put sin to death, Christian. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Deal harshly with those things. Sin is a harsh master, the harshest and the cruelest. You know, an evil master, human master, might beat his servants. A cruel boss may underpay his employees or not pay them at all. But the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, so our attitude towards sin must be death. Death to the sins. Because, Jesus says, it is better to do whatever it takes to be rid of your sin because of the alternative. He says it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to end up in hell. And we see that Jesus is also talking about hell. That's the second thing that we want to see is the reality of hell. Jesus speaks here very clearly about that, unequivocally about the reality of hell. Again, a a topic that is not very much, not very popular in churches today. They don't like to talk about it, many don't, and and that's even if they still believe in it. There are many that don't. But if you simply read the Bible, that's my advice to these people who deny hell. Open up that Bible and read it. If you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you cannot help but believe in the reality and the terror of hell. A place, the place, of eternal punishment for all those who are found guilty of breaking the holy law of God. 
And if you simply read the words of Jesus, you will believe in hell. You know, sometimes you hear that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. That's debatable. But what's not debatable is that Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible did. Perhaps that's because he doesn't want people to go there. Perhaps because he created it. Like the heaven and the earth, hell is a real place. And if it's a real place, then it's a created place. And if it's a created place, then he created it. He created it, Matthew 25, 41 tells us, for the devil and his angels. And it will also be occupied by the disobedient for all of those who fall short of the glory of God. Which, Paul says, that for those who are outside of Christ, for us, when we were outside of Christ, it's everyone. See, and without a real hell, there's no need for a real gospel. And so no need for Christ to have come and died since he came to rescue people from going to that place. When Paul says that the wages of sin is death, hell is the death that he is referring to. Since again, he, he contrasts it, Paul does, as Jesus does here, with life, with eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus refers to hell in verse 43 as the unquenchable fire. Now, there there may be some reason to see some figurative language concerning the descriptions of hell. Is it really a fire or is it outer darkness? Are those two pictures of something that's far worse than the descriptions would be? So though there may be some room uh, for seeing some figurative language concerning the description of hell, mark this, Christian, this morning, especially mark this non-Christian this morning, that the existence of hell as a physical place of torment for unbelievers is not figurative. Jesus never speaks about hell as if it's a state of mind or a picture of, of non-existence. Jesus describes it here as the unquenchable fire. And down in verse 48, he draws upon an image from Isaiah 66, 24 and describes it as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so the evaluation that Jesus gives is that there is nothing about the pleasures of sin that is worth the price that will be exacted on those that serve sin. An eternal fire of judgment to which the wicked will be subjected without mitigation, without relief, and without end. Forever and ever and ever. Well, finally then, Mark records three other statements of Jesus that that appear here to be connected verbally, 
Um, remember that as was typical in first century writings, the gospel writers, we've talked about this, they arrange the events from Jesus' life uh, at times in different ways in one another uh, to fit their own purpose in writing, their own audience, their own style. And here it seems that Mark has picked up on the idea of fire that we, we read there in verse 48. And then it reminds him of something else Jesus taught about fire, and that leads him to talk about something else. And so our final heading here is the saltiness of service because salt gets brought in here. In verses 49 and 50, we have three statements of Jesus. The first is in verse 49. So Jesus has just talked about the fire of judgment in verse 48. Now Mark records a statement Jesus made regarding a different kind of fire, a fire of purification. You know, that fire was used to to purify things, to purify metals. And whereas verse 48 speaks about those who find themselves separated from God, here in verse 49, where he says, for everyone will be salted with fire, here he's talking about those who are children of God, followers of Jesus Christ. And it appears that the that this is a reference to or or draws from, as so often in Mark's uh, gospel here, draws from the Old Testament, draws specifically from the sacrificial system. And the association, based on a command of God in the Old Testament, of salt with the sacrifices that were offered to God. In Leviticus we read this, that you shall season your grain offerings with salt. With all your offerings, he said, you shall offer salt. And of course, salt, which verse 50 reminds us is good, was used for various purposes uh, in this time, in this place, as it still is today, as a seasoning for food. It was used as an antiseptic. It was used as a preservative. And there were symbolic uses as well. It was symbolic, salt was, of life and of death. It was symbolic of of provision. It was symbolic of barrenness. But here Jesus seems to be saying that the Christians themselves, as they offer up the sacrifices of themselves, which remember Paul said was our reasonable service, that that sacrifice will, like the Old Testament sacrifices, be salted but that the salt of those sacrifices will be the fire of suffering, the fire of hardship. We will be salted with fire. Our offering of ourselves to God will be given through difficulty, through suffering. Jesus has just described the the costliness of true service to God as that which is willing to give up hand or foot or eye in order to be sincerely offered to God. We as Christians are to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. And Paul says that's part of the blessing of being a Christian. Back in Philippians chapter 1, he says that we have been granted to suffer for him. And this suffering makes a pleasing sacrifice to God and it's a purifying influence on us as children of God. That seems to be the the meaning behind verse 49. By the way, verse 49 is recognized to be one of the most difficult verses in the book of Mark. Uh, 
no fewer than 12 different, in the commentaries, uh, ideas of what exactly uh, he is meaning there. But when he comes to verse 50, so, so verse 50 is now linked to what goes before it by a word, the word salt. So it's like a chain. Verses 48, 49, and 50 are a chain. The fire in verse 48 leads to the fire in verse 49, and then the salt in verse 49 leads to the salt in verse 50. And in both cases, in the case of the fire and the case of the salt, in each of those two verses, the reference, uh, the symbol, uh, symbolic use of it is different. Fire in verse 48 was the fire of judgment. Fire in verse 49 is the fire of, of purification. And it's the same way here. Look at verse 50. The first part of it, there are two sayings here. The first one says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt is good, he says. It's a necessary element. Everyone knows that salt is is essential to to human life. It's necessary for us uh, as well in our devotion to God, the idea of, of purification. The salt represents here the, the beneficial qualities. He says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? That's a bad thing if it loses its saltiness. So salt represents the beneficial qualities of our service to God, something that is necessary for us to maintain through devotion to God and attention to how the Bible says we are to serve God. But as Jesus says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The answer is you can't. In science, in real salt, salt won't lose its saltiness. But the salt that's used in this area came from a couple of different places. It would come from deposits around the Dead Sea. Remember the the saltiest body of water on earth? Uh, or it would come from water from that, that lake that had been set out in the sun, and the water evaporates, and what's left is the salt. But the salt that, is, that comes from those two places was not pure sodium chloride, but could have other minerals in it. Gypsum was in it at times, and different things that were in it that, under certain circumstances, would make it useless. It couldn't be used as salt. And the effect of that is that it would ruin the salt. It would make it unsalty. And once that happened, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, there's nothing to do with it but throw it out. And that again points to the demanding nature of discipleship, to be a preserving and a purifying influence in this world through our own radical commitment to Christ, to the kingdom of God. And then the final statement, a final exhortation to each of us, beloved, to have this preserving, purifying influence first in ourselves, as witnessed by, he says, being at peace with one another. That probably ties all of this back to the the situation that began this whole thing that we looked at a couple, three weeks ago. When they came to Capernaum and the disciples, remember Jesus said, what were you talking about? as we were on the road, and what had they been talking about? They were arguing about who would be the greatest. 
But rather, Jesus says that having this salt in yourselves will cause you to be at peace with one another, to not compete in that silly way of saying who's going to be the greatest when you're in the presence of Christ who is going to die for you. And let us remember, though, that we, you can't really be at peace with one another until you're at peace with God. Unfortunately, beloved, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul said in Romans 5. He who has made that peace, he who has reconciled us with God, has made it, given us peace with God, and therefore we can be at peace with others. So, beloved, let our service to God be as salty as possible. And let us, through the means that God has given us, His Spirit, His Word, prayer, His church, let us give no place to any sin in our lives. Let us deal harshly with it. Let us put it to death as we serve the one who has given us eternal life. And to that, let us say, amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that our, our righteousness is, is not through us. It is through Christ. It is his righteousness, in fact. But we thank you, God, that you have called us to, to serious service. And you have revealed to us in your word, even this morning, the seriousness of sin and how we are to deal seriously with it. We pray that you would help us to give sin no quarter, that we would give sin no place in our lives, but we would confess our sin, that we would repent of our sin. And we pray that through your spirit, you would continue to sanctify us uh, from our sin. And Lord, make us more like Christ. We pray that you would help us in these things. May we, Lord, as we've seen, be salty in our service. And let us, as we are, have peace with you, Lord, let us seek to be at peace with one another. In all of these things, we give you the thanks, O Lord, for it is your work. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.